Welcome to Artistic Beginnings. I'm Mitch. And I'm Melody. We're siblings who grew up working in the entertainment industry and were deeply impacted by the arts. I'm a professional actor, singer, and dancer working in Los Angeles and New York, still pursuing an artistic career. I, on the other hand, am no longer pursuing that career. I went on to become a researcher, though I'm still involved in the creative industry. Artistic Beginnings is all about the winding artistic paths that creatives follow in their lives. We share these inspirational stories with you so that you can learn and grow as a creative. So let's get into it. Yeah. Yes. This warm-up actually is a physical warm-up that I do in both my dialects class and my advanced acting class, but I found it to be something that I created going to auditions for television and film and a few equity shows. They usually allow you a bit more time to warm up, but you need something that you can do really quick, really easy, that gets you into your body and out of your head. And so the first thing you do is you roll out your shoulders up towards the ears and then down the back. And then you roll your shoulders forward, like three or four rotations. And then you bend your knees and you twist at the waist so you can open up your diaphragm and it loosens up your back muscles. And then you roll your head in a couple of circles to the right. And then you do a couple to the left. And then you stretch out your soft palate by giving a yawn. And you go, going the length of your vocal range. And then from there, I'll do a couple of lip trills, like so that my face loosens up, especially on camera. The more tense your face is, the more it reads, and you can't Mm -hmm. really get any characterization across while looking human. (laughs) And then the last (laughs) thing I'll usually do is put a finger in front of my face about an inch away. I'm sure, Melody, you remember this. And say one, two, three, four, five. And depending on the character that I'm doing, I might change my voice given my emotional state. If I'm really excited about something, one, two, three, four, five. Or if I'm really upset about something, one, two, three, four, five. Or if I'm doing a dialect, then it might be one, two, three, four, five, or one, two, three, four, five, or one, two, three, four, five, you know, just kind of depending on what it is. I didn't realize you had a couple people over there. So it's the, it's the monkey dance trick. This is the, the party trick. It's just oh, it's switching so from one dialect to the next. And you're like, whoa, you do voices. It's very cool. <laughs> Quick question on that last one, too. What, what's the point of having the finger in front of your face? Because our voice, how it sounds, is very different based on where you put your voice in your mouth. So if you were to put your voice, like we as kids do this all the time. We experiment with our voice. It's just as we get older, and especially when we're in school, when they tell us to, quote, talk normal or don't talk like that, you know, <laughs> that's when you stop. Uh, naturally doing it, but we naturally experiment with like, okay, let's pretend that I had something in the back of my throat and you go, oh my God, there's something on the back of my throat. You know, you do weird, you're a kid, you do weird things or pretend there's a marble under your tongue. I pretend there's a marble under my tongue. You do weird little things like that. And that's what's called vocal placement. That's where you're placing your voice. And usually with the differences of dialects and emotional states, your voice will land differently in your mouth. So when people are really excited, to, and I'm just going from a standard American dialect from this point, usually when you're really excited, you can feel that smile across your face or that kind of enthusiastic tension that's kind of in the neck and in the sides of your mouth. And that'll kind of flatten out your sound, but it'll put it up in the mask. So that's why things sound really bright and really interesting. And I'm going on a date and I think he really likes me, but I'm oh God, I don't know. I'm just not sure. You can really mm. feel it resonate off of the, the front part of the mask. Whereas sometimes when, when you're upset, the you know it's a natural tendency to want to disappear when you feel insecure, when you feel sad, when you're being vulnerable. And so our voice kind of travels back a little bit further back on the tongue so that you're not, especially if you're trying not to cry and you're doing a really good job of, of like trying to keep it down your voice will travel a little bit further back. And so that's what I mean by vocal placement. So that's what the finger does. It just kind of gives me a visual reinforcer to be like, where is my voice placed in my mouth? It's a great place to start from. I think one of the big things is actors, we get so up in our heads that mm-hmm. sometimes we just need a place to start. And I like starting from something physical and something concrete that's easy to change because then it just gives you permission to make stronger and stronger choices. And then your brain starts going, I can do this. I got this. I'm good at acting, which is essentially what you need in order to create and collaborate. 
Welcome back, everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome. I hope everybody's staying nice and cool in this 100-degree weather that we're having in California. Everyone's staying safe and wearing your masks. Yep. It's hot. Just like this next interview we're about to listen to. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) It's hot off the presses, Melody. Okay, fine. Well, <laughs> this week we had Tuffet on our show. She's amazing. She's uh, was my dialect coach in high school. Mine too. I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> she was not. <laughs> I wish. wish. Yeah, I. <laughs> she was the best. I was just gonna say that I was impressed by her whole Harry Potter thing. So she would have been the best high school teacher. Oh, she's obsessed with Harry Potter. It was amazing. I feel like at some point in our class, she like split us up into houses and had us do work in that way. I could be totally making that up but I feel like that was a thing do you remember what house you were I think I'm a Gryffindor I uh, here's the thing I've taken the (laughs) don't we all I know no I know but I've taken the Pottermore test which is supposed to be like the most you know the one that's supposed to let you know but you can definitely tell like which answer is which it's like how would you help a friend and it's like one I won't help them at all the next one is like I'll do it in a heroic way the next one's like I'll read a book about it and the next one's like I like cheese so (laughs) (laughs) wait which one's the one that says I like cheese. Hufflepuff. (laughs) Anyway, back to the podcast that we have. (laughs) Yeah, people don't need to know all of this. Uh, We can cut that out. We can cut out a lot Um, of it. It's fine. But um, yeah, I love Tuffet. I think she's incredible. Just the the things that she can do with her voice and she does it throughout our interview as well. Um, it is insane. Like I've always been fascinated by accents. I think they're so cool and so interesting and the way that she's able to just like flip in and out of them. Spectacular. Super impressive. And I think it just goes to show also this conversation that we had, even though she is just kind of God level when it comes to dialects, she's also a great educator and like coach. So it's not just that she has the, the base level skills and like that impressive side, it's the fact that she can, she's able to share it. So that's another cool thing that, that we cover on, yeah. on this episode. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> enjoy. Well, I told my parents, specifically my mother, who's a pediatric nurse, when I was three years old, that I was going to Los Angeles because I was going to be a Muppet. I legitimately oh. thought that it was a profession you could pursue. And so I practiced doing different facial expressions and, and voices and things because, you know, that's what you need to be a Muppet. Of course. Like, if you're going to join Kermit and the gang, like, that's what you got to do. You got to be, be up to par. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, exactly. So, so you were going to be your own separate new Muppet. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because mm-hmm. I already had the unique name. I already had the name Tuffet. So, like, Tuffet the Muppet. Totally makes sense. It does ring very right? nicely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mm-hmm. must say. <laughs> For like a three, four, five-year-old's mind, totally makes sense. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And from there, I think it was it was the summer before, I think it was probably in fifth grade when I, I went to a Catholic grade school, K through eight, and then I went to a Catholic all-girls high school. Fantastic high school, women empowerment, go Nerics. But... You can imagine that their arts programs are just shoestring budget, like putting cotton balls on paper plates with like a few popsicle sticks. Like that's the extent (laughs) of music and art, let alone theater. Theater did not exist. So my parents being the good parents that they were, like most parents, they want to get their kids out of the house over the summer so they can get a break. So you put your kids into summer camps and things like that. And I took a summer camp that had preteen acting in it. And my two directors at that summer camp, Amy Ellen and Bob Mitchell, were like, oh my gosh, this girl has so much talent. She's just brilliant. She should be doing this professionally. And they helped shepherd my parents along to different classes that I could take, kind of keep an eye out for me. They put me in a few professional productions. And that was really where I got started was by doing speech team at my school and Mm. doing these summer camps. Then by the time, of course, I got to high school, it was, I was able to do, you know, proper high school theater. And then I went (laughs) to Loyola University Chicago for college because my parents were not comfortable with me moving to Los Angeles for school. 
I looked at UCLA and, and USC mm. and neither of my parents and is back in like, 1997. No. <laughs> They're like, my mother, my dad's like, you know, whatever. But my mother was like, that's just too far. Cause being from St. Louis, it is halfway across. It's 3000 miles. I get it. And I knew I didn't want to go to New York because I didn't want to pursue theater. And at the time in the late nineties, New York had a, a pretty extensive film community that, and films that were shot there, but most of it was still cast out of Los Angeles. So if you wanted to do film and television, you really wanted to go to Los Angeles. So yeah, that's how I le- landed on Loyola Chicago because a lot of the schools that I was looking for back in the day, having gone to the women empowerment high school that I did, I was very aware of I used to watch Saturday Night Live because that was something I was interested in doing. I did a ton of improv and I did a ton of mm. sketch comedy in high school and prior to that in junior high. And I just saw over and over how every guy on Saturday Night Live seemed to have a film career after they were on SNL, but none of the women did. It wasn't mm. until like Molly Shannon and Anna Gasteyer and Sherry O'Terry, like in the early 2000s, did the women start really being the central focus? And then Tina Fey kind of came in as head writer and everything turned on its head. And you got to see a lot more feature films starring the the female stars of the SNL. Mm. And so now you can go and have the Kristen Wiggs and the Maya Rudolphs and all of these really terrific female comedians that have come off of SNL and have continued to work. But at the time that I was going to college, that wasn't something that was too prominent. So especially when I was looking at colleges and they were conservatories, most of the conservatories, unless you were a really strikingly beautiful ingenue, if you were a sort of normal looking girl, (laughs) you were going to get cut after your first or second year. It didn't matter how amazing you were because they wanted to keep the numbers. And so Mm -hmm. that's why I said no to conservatories and Chicago was a programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Back in the day we had cut programs and I'm like, uh, I'm going to spend how much money. And then you have the, the choice whether or not you think I'm talented enough. Yeah. No, 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 that's no. So that's how I arrived at, at Loyola Chicago. They, they were a good program. I could still take classes outside. So I got to take classes at, at Second City and, and one class at UCB. And then after I graduated, I moved out to LA and I've been here ever since. Amazing. So when making the, the transition over to outside of school, what was that kind of experience life for you? Uh, what, was, what was hilarious is that I had no frame of reference. Like I know so many actor friends who are like, oh, I knew my other actor friend that came out or and was working, you know, had graduated from school. Like I, I marvel at these kids at LAXA because they're going, A, they're going to high school with at least a third of the kids from their class are probably going to pursue acting through like the age of 30. So they have right. those yeah. built-in industry connections, right? And they were born in Los Angeles, totally. so they could yeah. probably get representation by referral fairly easily. <laughs> but then they're yeah. going on to these really terrific schools and have those connections that way and will do agency showcases and things like that after. Mm-hmm. And I was coming from the Midwest, coming from Loyola, Chicago, like this they had a good theater program, but it was not right, a premier yeah. theater. And plus people didn't really do agency showcases back then. Like mm-hmm. a couple of schools did, like NYU did. But that's also theater is theater is theater. And we don't do film and television. We only do theater because it's the yes. only true artistic art form, <laughs> period. Yes, I will not deign to go to Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, that's so accurate. Right? It is. <laughs> and it still is. That's the crazy thing is that it's still I that know. way. They've changed a little bit, but it's pretty It's pretty much still that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the LA actors who are like, well, I've booked all these like recurrings. I should be able to do theater no problem. How come I'm not like getting callbacks? How come I'm not getting called in the room? Oh, you don't have the training. Shush, shush, shush. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just it's yep. two totally different. How come I just don't like automatically get it? And it's it's sure. so different. And it's also you. I I really empathize for the the New York actors who, I just look at them green with envy sometimes when they move out from New York and they've done off Broadway, they've done Broadway, and not even in like small roles, but like lead roles in musicals and straight plays. And they're used to working six out of seven days a week. Yeah. And then they come out to Los Angeles because they're like, I want to make some money. <laughs> I, I Maybe I was working, <laughs> sure. But oh, that's so I, true. <laughs> I couldn't afford to live. I was living basically like 
slightly <laughs> yeah i was living at the lowest possible end that could be classified as middle class yep so i want to oh, go to los God, angeles so and make some money like i'll do some commercials here and then continue and be able to do theater and you just right, look at yeah. them you go oh you don't know what you're walking into in the same way that the la actors are like oh i just want to pursue my art i'm gonna go out to new york and i'm gonna like make it work they're like oh god yeah. This is all yeah. sacrifice all the time. <laughs> yes. It is. Yeah. Yes, it is. It totally yes, it is. is. Then Chicago is just cold. Like you can be you can you can be an actor in <laughs> Chicago, but it's just cold. <laughs> Nightmare wind. But I was tangenting. No, go. <laughs> Mitch asked go. me a question. Gonna answer it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so I came out here and I essentially did the classic thing that you need to do. Like you had the checklist, right? Mm-hmm. First things first, you gotta become SAG. So that became how, especially me being the kind of quirky, fun girl from the Midwest with red hair and freckles and is 5'3", I wasn't like the tall, really lilf, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed, like Budweiser commercial beer girl. Right. Right. I I didn't look like that. So it became a challenge of, okay, for someone who's not very good networking, because I... (laughs) (laughs) Don't particularly like going out in crowds. This is going to be a fun experiment to try and get my vouchers. And I happened to, through the day job that I was working, befriend Bill Dance with Bill Dance Casting. He does extras casting. And they were doing Cat in the Hat, the movie with Mike Myers. And they had a couple of vouchers. And I had done him a few favors as far as finding actors for him at the last minute to fill in Hmm. for some of the non-union work. And so he said, hey, this would be two weeks. It'll be SAG vouchers. You'll be able to get your SAG card, but you're going to have to drive all the way out to Pomona, and they're probably not going to give you any extra money for for the damage (laughs) to your car. But they're going to be on your vouchers, so you're going to be able to join SAG. And so within, I think, seven months of my being here, I shot that. And I was like the most triumphant actor feeling ever to like go in the SAG and plunk down my check for like Mm – $1,360 $1,360 at the time. <laughs> so oh, cheap wow. in comparison. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That I sounds know. really nice. <laughs> Doesn't it? And like I knew actors and I was like, oh my God, that's so expensive. You know? Right. And because other actors well, again, I knew, it time, was like two fifty, five hundred. 500 Yeah. <laughs> at the time, it was super expensive. Right. Just like now, yeah. it was like, well, how much does this yeah. cost? And yeah. in four years, we'll be like, no, it's nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And then from there, it was, all right, you know, find an agent. And, you know, I was in class and I started doing, you know, a couple of different acting classes, just kind of throwing the spaghetti against the wall, trying to find classes that I thought, you know, because we've all been there. We've been in acting classes where we feel like, when's it my time Mm -hmm. to go up? You never want to be the most talented person in the acting class. It's the worst feeling ever. And you also don't want to feel like the least. (laughs) Yeah, you won't learn anything. And you also don't want to feel like the least talented person there because then you're just going to get an inferiority complex and that's going to destroy your uh, ability to audition. So, yeah, it's about finding the right mix of classes. And I was able to get an agent. And then I started doing the thing that everybody says to do. You started doing the workshops, the casting director workshops. Very controversial. Now they are, but mm-hmm. at the time it was. Now they are, yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it, right. I think they've. I think they've evolved into being controversial. I think they started off as a genuinely good thing, and then a few people got greedy, and that's mm-hmm. where we are now. <laughs> I agree because yeah. I found it wildly helpful, and I did, you know, for just developing those relationships because the casting directors weren't doing generals anymore. It just wasn't right. something that they yeah. had time in their day to do, and now that we've reached peak TV with so many series there's so much going on on streaming and on the networks and on you know summer season and I mean it's just 24-7 there are no seasons anymore so I can't imagine casting directors attempting to try and do generals now I think I think in the future there's going to be something with self-tapes particularly now that we're in this pandemic I and the the number of self-tapes that have been requested by casting directors just to kind of keep them busy and you know, why yeah, the heck I mean, not? a couple of them honestly have done generals too, where they're like, we're not mm-hmm. currently casting, but since we have the time now, send us yeah. your stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I do, I do agree with you. I think I think self-tapes are going to 
become much more popular now because a, a lot of casting offices did do them or they'll do them you know if you're in new york wanting to send something in for la or vice versa but i think now especially with what's going on and they see how much more they can get and how much easier it may be it may shift to that which is a little unfortunate because i i do think there is something missed about being in the room but yes. as an actor you have as many takes as you want and you can get it as perfect as you want, which again can also be detrimental because you probably did really well the first time, but now you're just getting real nitpicky. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I th- and I hope that they, that starts being something that they do once a month maybe is that they accept general mm. submissions, you know, yeah. self-tapes, something that's 60 to 120 seconds, you know, one to two minutes. And let me see a general sense of you just so I have you refreshed in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in LA, you're doing the LA. actor thing. Yes. And when... I had, I started in college for the dialect coaching. I can already see where you're going with this. Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Answer it. <laughs> I know. I was like, cause everyone, that's the thing that people it's will be like, like you when know the heck mind. did that start? I'm like, well, that started yeah. when I was a kid because I legit, again, going back to a Muppet, you had to have an unusual right. voice. And my yeah. voice being from St. Louis is like the most standard American <laughs> voice you could possibly imagine. There's really, other than a few things like saying wash instead of wash, like a washing machine instead of washing machine. And my mother said, I've never said that, but my mother does. Like that's it <laughs> as far as a regional right. dialect is concerned. And Does I, that make for a good baseline though? Is it that does. like good to move it, from or is it better to start with one of those really outlandish kind of accents naturally? I think it's everybody's a different kind of learner as far as their voice is concerned. Some people are really visual learners. They like to look at diagrams of the face in profile and kind of get an understanding about where things fall as far as the voice is concerned or, you know, the teeth or the tongue. Other people are auditory learners. They really learn by just hearing it and repeating it. And they can kind of, those are the people that can generally pick up instruments really easily and learn by ear. And Mm. then there's the kinesthetic learners, the people that usually have to do a combination of both, but they need to do it with an exercise or with an intention behind it, like asking somebody for the time and I need it right now. Yes. So you need to give them some uh, objective behind it and that way Mm. they can combine their visual and their auditory senses and be able to uh, manipulate their voice. So for me, it's not really so much about like me having a standard American. I know that most colleges, they're going to your first semester, they're going to teach you how to speak properly in a standard American accent because that's the best for the stage. And mm-hmm. you want to increase your resonance so that essentially the theaters don't have to put mics on you because it's a lot cheaper not to have you mic'd. It is. You know? (laughs) So, but I think that I've heard people that have come from Boston who can easily go into a British dialect. And then I've heard people from the middle of nowhere, Iowa, be able to go into a British dialect. It doesn't necessarily Mm. matter for you to have that standard American baseline. Mm. But dialect coaching was something that I, because I wanted to be a Muppet, and then I eventually (laughs) realized it wasn't going to be possible. Uh I realized that they were not, in fact... I won't even say the word. Yes. They were not, in fact, alive. I can't say real because they are real, but... They are real, yes. They're not technically alive themselves. (laughs) It was a tough day. So I... Right? And then I naturally, because you're in the middle of the Midwest and you're this very odd... I'm the only one in my family with the name Tuffet. My siblings' name... I'm the middle child. My siblings' name are Bob and Emily. My... (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, it gets better. I really want to know your parents' thought process behind that. (laughs) Yes. My parents' names are Mike and Peggy. Oh, classic America. Of Exactly. And here I am. I'm the only one with red hair. I'm the only one with this name like Tuffet. And I was obsessed with being a Muppet. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to do all these different voices. So naturally, where do you go when you can't become a Muppet? You try and just be from someplace else, period. Mm -hmm. So naturally, me being the TV watcher and movie watcher that I was, I would just mimic what I saw on television. Mm -hmm. And Diana Rigg from the Muppets Take Manhattan, she is British. She has a deliciously, like, Oxford-bred received pronunciation, very high-class British. 
And so mm. I would naturally just go around and talk like this and make sure that I sounded like I was from Britain. And when we'd go out to dinner, you know, naturally they would ask me what I wanted to eat and I would answer and they say, oh, who is this? And my mother would just bow her head in shame, covering <laughs> her eyes with her hand and say, Tuffet, talk in your normal voice. And thus began my mother's mantra for like every time we were out in public for pretty much to this day. She asked when we talked about the interview because I had a Zoom meeting with my immediate family. We're in San Francisco, St. Louis, and Minnesota. And mm-hmm. she goes, oh, you're doing an, a podcast? Oh, well, that's neat. You're not going to talk in those funny voices, are you? <laughs> like, yes. Oh, yes. You're like, um, Mom, you're those like, are my job. <laughs> I'm like, I get paid for those funny voices. God, they're so weird. Yes. Your, your business is just so weird, tough. So a lot of it was self-taught, but then I went on to college and I was asked to help a few students. There was a student production of this play called Kinder Transport, and it was about Jewish children escaping the Holocaust through mm. a train specifically called Kinder Transport, and it would take them to places in, in Canada and the States from different families. And so these little Jewish kids needed a German accent. And mm. I was a, I was a senior at the time, and I had helped people in in my dialects class because I just I caught things really easily. And they said, "Would you would you mind just coming in for a few of the rehearsals?" And I just happened to kind of be able to look at somebody and see how they were learning and figure out how to speak to them so that they could speak in the dialect. I was mm. able to give them direction effectively, and that was the thing that began. And I didn't start doing it professionally until. I want to say 2006, my former business partner, Tracy Winters, she was a a dialect coach and had worked at in UCLA and we did a play together at the El Portal Theater. And she was looking for somebody to help her out on productions because she was having so many auditions as an actor. And she thought, you know, it'd be great if two actors who are good at dialect coaching could team up so that way we could continue to act and have a day job that was within our creative passion. We teamed up for about three years and then I went out on my own. So as she was pursuing acting full-time and it was just something that I've been doing, coaching, you know, productions and private coachings and on film and television sets. It's just, it was honestly just something that I never thought I would be able to make money on. Never. That's so interesting. Wow. Yeah. It is. And I was looking at kind of your, your experience and I was curious how different the kind of modalities are when you're working with just actors one-on-one versus working on productions. I guess you're still working one-on-one with actors, but how mm-hmm. are those kind of projects different? Mm, that's a really good question. I think working with an actor one-on-one, they tend to be a little bit more vulnerable and a bit more self-conscious. We all kind of turn into actors, especially, and I include myself as one of these. We turn into a little bit into our high school selves when we're working with a cast. So we always want to feel like we know what we're doing. You know, we're like, I'm going to yeah. show up and I'm either going to be really eager. I'm going to be eager to learn. And I'm going to listen. But also like, I kind of got this. Like, I'm going to be OK. I kind of got this. I'm not going to embarrass myself. Whereas when you're working one-on-one, you don't have the comfort of the crowd. So Mm. your abilities, there's, there's nothing to hide behind. You have what you have and that's it. I think that's why you're able to do such comprehensive, depthful work one-on-one. But you're able to do, I think it's a little bit easier to to do the, the speech pattern and the vocal placement with the group because you're able to do group exercises and sound off of each other. It's a mm. lot easier to do an accent. Melody knows this. My number one rule, whether it's for when people come to coach with me or when we're in class at the high school or I'm working on a production, doesn't matter. I say you have to be in dialect the entire time. If you walk through the door, you're in dialect, regardless of whether or not you're working on the script or you're just talking to somebody about what kind of coffee you got them. The more that you're able to stay in dialect and speak spontaneously in it, the more that your your subconscious brain really just says, I am this character. And you're also saying to the actors that you're working with, you are that character. So the resistance of I'm not good enough or I don't sound right or I don't sound like this person, that really starts to diminish within the first week if people actually stay in their dialect 24-7. They just get way less self-conscious. Because especially if you're hearing everybody do it all the time, just by osmosis, you're going to get better and you're going to do the dialect much more consistently than if you were to try to turn it on and off like a light switch. Like I did an episode of House. It was a scene with Hugh Laurie and the the kid that we were working with, poor little thing, he was very young. (laughs) 
he was maybe three or four and he kept looking right into the camera like oh. most three or four year olds will. So oh, when yeah. he was doing his lines, he's like Bing, looking right in the camera. And our poor director that day was just so exhausted. And so, oh. and mom's at craft services. She's kind of a typical stage mom in that right. she wasn't really there right. to like help the yeah. director to redirect. And so the director was like, we're going to work with this kid real quick and try and solve this problem. Tevin and Hugh, why don't you guys go take a break? And the break ended up being something ridiculous, like a half an hour, 45 minutes, like oh, just wow. forever. And it was for one scene. That's you know, It was a nice little co-star, lost. but it was yes. one scene. I'm just kind of like talking to Hugh Laurie, trying to be like, cool, like, I don't need to talk to you, but we're both like, bored and well, we want to be we'll in conversation. I guess we'll just make like casual conversation. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, Hugh Laurie? <laughs> yeah. And it was one of those, I started asking him where he was from in England. And he's like, oh, I, I love the dialects from there. That's some of the most fun ones to do. And he said, oh, do you do accents? And I naturally started speaking really in like a modern London, you know, the more usual one that you hear on movies and things like that. And his eyes got really big and he was like, oh, my God, you sound like you're from my block. You sound like you're from my street. Oh, my God. And because he was in his standard American dialect the entire mm-hmm. time, entire time. And oh, wow. he said, that's amazing. You can turn it on and off like a light switch. I can't. Like he's got to stay in his American dialect. Otherwise, he will slip back into his natural British dialect. And he finds it really, really hard to be able to straddle both worlds. His muscle memory just doesn't allow for that. And so when he's in the United States, when he was filming House, he was pretty much in his standard American dialect 24-7. And then during hiatus, he would go back to the UK and he was able to, you know, just be himself and speak in his natural accent. Oh, does that have a lasting effect on on people? Like, I have to imagine that's a huge like brain kerfluffle. I don't, I don't even have a mm-hmm. word for it. Uh, <laughs> it is. That was a good word weird. for it. That was yeah. a great word for it, Mitch. Yes, <laughs> thanks, thanks. I make up words. <laughs> well, no, that is. It's ex- that's exactly what it is. It's almost like a short circuit in the brain because mm. you are not just speaking in the voice. This is a big thing that people don't understand about dialects in general is that it's not just about the pronunciation of something. That's not it. It's really you're changing your body and your mind and how you think a little bit, how you react to things based on your voice. There are things that we just naturally assume because all the cultural implications are in the voice. You can't divorce the voice from the culture. It's already in there. And so when you're naturally speaking, like if you guys were to be speaking in an Irish dialect for a longer period of time, I guarantee you, your shoulders are going to slump a little bit. They're going to round a little bit. You're probably going to cock your head with your chin to the side more often than not. And when you emphasize things, you're going to notice yourself using your eyebrows a lot more because you're going to go up in pitch with your sentences. So naturally, if if you're doing an, an Irish dialect, you're going to have a lot more of a bounce to it and you're going to use your hands a lot more just because of that gesticulating because of that bounce in your in your pitch and in your inflection and it going up there you're going to probably naturally raise your eyebrows just because your voice is going up and because of the code you know you got your shoulders slumped because that informs how you speak with the r's and so that's the really where the brain kerfuffle comes in because you're not just inhabiting a different way of speaking you're really inhabiting a different culture which for actors I'm like that's why I love doing dialect work when I act because it's almost like taking a supersonic speedway as an actor into the character it oh, automatically yeah. helps me transform into that character I do have, I have a random question just because I don't know if you've ever said it or if I ever asked in class, what's your, what's your favorite accent to do? Everybody asks me that and I don't, gosh, sorry. It's so weird because it changes. (laughs) (laughs) For you personally. (laughs) I would say the favorite depends on the situation, you know? Yeah. If I'm, if I'm doing like customer service. My favorite and the most effective one I found is that I need to speak in a Texas accent because I swear they are so much kinder and they are so much nicer when you're speaking in like a rural nice Texas accent. They're going to they're gonna help you out a lot better than if I were just speaking a natural standard American. Mm. Um, oh, you I'm do in, that on, on the side of if you need help from customer service? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's like, I'm spilling all of my secrets. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's any of the South. Anything from the South, except for like the, the Appalachian, like not, not West Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, like not that one. Like can't be talking like this there and, and expecting to get yourself some, 
it's that that one's not going to get what you want out of customer service. That and a right. really posh British accent, they will automatically just kind of like straighten up and and listen to what you oh, say the first time. Wild. Mm-hmm. When I'm in traffic, absolutely Cockney. It is required. <laughs> I'm in my bl- oh, yeah, I'm gonna kill you. Really. I can't believe you cut me off. I'm gonna I'm gonna nail you to the cross. I'm gonna light you on fire. Oh my god, you're so stupid. You know, like that one's a necessity. Gosh, it, it changes. Like the hardest one, the one that I've been trying to teach myself to do well. I, I haven't mastered anything other than Japanese as far as the countries in Asia. Like they're mm. so intricate and the placement is so so different. And they have a mastery of diction that we as in standard American, we just don't have. That's why standard American is really hard for uh, my actors who come from different countries, particularly if English is a second or third language for them. The thing, Mm -hmm. the mantra that I have them say over and over again is just lazy it up. They're so used to using their tongue Mm -hmm. and their lips and their teeth a lot more that to not is actually so much harder. I would love to learn and be significantly better with the multiple different forms of the regions in China. That would be mm. awesome. And South African is proving to be much more challenging for me. Like mm. I've I've got the West and the East African down pretty much. You know, we don't we just don't have the research actually to come out of Africa as far as voice recordings and people having done the linguistic work there yet. But from what there is, I've got a decent mastery of West and East African, but combining that with like the New Zealand some of the New Zealand sound changes and a little right, bit more yeah. of that like British placement in South Africa yeah. and keeping it consistent. It's a very interesting one. Yeah. A lot of it's based on socioeconomic factors and race and also time period because their accent has changed so much in the last 50 years. So mm-hmm. generationally, it's really, really different. Whereas somebody who was speaking standard American 50 years ago, you're probably going to sound pretty similar to the people who are speaking standard American now. But in South Africa, it's wildly different. So that's the hardest one for me right now. So are, are you actively keeping track? Like, how, how are you keeping up with these dialect changes? Do you have resources that you're using to maintain an understanding of what's going on currently? Like, how does that kind of work? About every six months, I'll look on Amazon to see if anybody's published any new book of dialects. Like, that's my goal, I think, within the next 10 years. It's like, it's one of those, I'm going to get to this, I'm going to get to this, because I really want to write a book of dialects that breaks down each regional dialect, but from the perspective of a woman, because most dialects books are written by (laughs) men. So a lot of their resource material is from men, and it's definitely from more educated and prominent, more you know, community leaders or employed, you know, so it's just, it's a very different perspective. So when I'm learning a dialect from some of those resources or with input from some of those report sources, I know that it's going to be tilted a little bit. So that A, the goal is like, tough it, get off your butt and like <laughs> tour the world with the <laughs> areas that it. you want <laughs> and like create this book. It, I mean, it'll be like my opus. It'll take me like 10 years guaranteed with all the right, resourcing yeah. and stuff that I'll need but to what do. what a fun 10 years. <laughs> right? I know, especially for a dork yeah. like me who's like, do you hear that? Do you hear that? Sounds different. Do you hear that? Oh my God. I can't even do it right. God. Do you hear that? But uh, for me, the most effective way, like when people are asking, okay, I don't have the money for a dialect session or Tuffet's unavailable and my other dialect coach that I know is unavailable. How do I prepare for this audition? And I need a dialect and I don't have a coach to work with. Here you go. Here's your free lesson. Number one, remember that it's television and it's probably for an American audience. So they're not looking for something to be as authentic as what would be seen actually in the region right now. That's not what they're looking for. For television and film, then that's not what they're looking for. It's the same thing with theater. Theater, like, yes, they want you to have a proper Boston accent, especially if you're working class, but they want you to be intelligible first. So remember that intelligibility trumps accuracy. Number two, do not go to the dialect coaches online that are like, how to do this accent in six minutes. Those are great for reference. But if, especially if you're an auditory learner, you need to go and just write in the city that you are looking at and write like Boston local news. And from the local mm-hmm. news, they'll in, or you can write a Boston and an event like Boston mm-hmm. marathon fans, something like that. And they'll, you'll see the local TV news will interview people 
from Boston with those really fun working class South side of Boston accents. I find those real people to be much more accurate to listen to than the dialect coaches that have their little six minute videos or Mm -hmm. watching a film like I'm going to go watch the fighter and I'm going to watch Christian Bale do it. Not that Christian Bale isn't great. Not that he doesn't do a really terrific Boston accent, but Mark Wahlberg should be the one that you listen to because he was born and raised there. The ones that Mm -hmm. are the natives are the ones that I will listen to, even if their accent is slightly more watered down than what Mm. like the famous people are doing. So that's where I go to. If you're a visual learner, you're going to want to break down your script and really go about it, trying to figure out which words you want to stress in every sentence. You know, determine the beats, determine your intentions line by line, determine your tactics line by line. And that'll help you figure out those words that you want to stress in the sentence, the way you naturally say it in standard American. From there, you can go and have your list of words. And as you're, you know, kind of plumbing YouTube for a half an hour, because it's surprising how much you can accomplish as far as just listening for 20, 30 seconds, two minutes on YouTube. You're like, how the hell did I go through 15 videos? And then from there, you can get a general idea and then write out those words for yourself phonetically. Mm. And that's, I think, an easy way to, to tackle that. Yeah, I really like that advice. It resonates in terms of like how, you know, you learn other aspects of kind of pieces that are are valuable for either like what I'm doing for work or as an actor, like all those kinds of pieces, the methodologies are there. It's just a a different tactic. It's kind of interesting. Reminds me of something that I read on of yours that's kind of, it's not about learning how to sound like you're from a region. It's about being from there. And it's Mm -hmm. that thing of like really digging down into the moment where you're pulling from the source rather than a secondary piece. Right. And ultimately, when going in for an audition, all casting directors, producers, and directors are looking for is for you to be consistent because everybody's voice sounds differently. So there isn't one way of doing a regional dialect. What we hear is when we hear people do it really awful. And it's because it's inconsistent, not because it's like super duper awful. You're making a choice. Like I know Dick Van Dyke is much maligned for his British accent in Mary Poppins. (laughs) But he's so consistent that it's an enduring character choice. You know, you can't get mad at it because, man, alive, that man is consistent. At least it's consistent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really what matters at the end of the day. Because your voice is your voice. Nobody's going to be able to recreate your voice regardless of however much training and however much they break it down. Hey everyone, just wanted to hop in before we get into our final questions to let you know where you can find Tuffet. Her website is www.dialectgeek.com. Her Facebook is also The Dialect Geek, so it's www.facebook.com slash dialectgeek, or you can just search Dialect Geek in the search bar. And her Instagram is at Tuffet's World. Yes, and to transition us over to the next portion, a little bit of good news, bad news. Good news is for the <laughs> answers that we got from Tuffet, we had her answer in accents, which was spectacular. So fun. So good. Yes. Backfired a little bit. So the bad news is you're also going to hear me <laughs> do accents. So prepare your earballs. Yep. Enjoy. What is the hardest thing about pursuing the arts? Convincing yourself daily that you are good enough and that you're worth pursuing this. Not convincing anybody else. Not actually the work that you're doing. Just waking up every day and being like, yeah, you got this. You're good enough. You're totally good enough. Go for it. Mitch, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I texted Melody asking if she could do her questions in an accent. Yes, you have to. Come on. I haven't been practicing. You'd be very disappointed in me. (laughs) All you do is you mute and you do the one, two, three. You should do the one, two, three, four, five. You should demonstrate the one, two, three, four, five for the listeners so they can understand how it works. Okay. All right. I have to pick an accent. Let me get into my my southern draw. One, two, three, four, five. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite piece of art right now? Oh, my word. Oh, honey, my favorite piece of art. Dear Lord. Well, I have been listening to this. I've been finding these interesting, you know, podcasts. I highly recommend the Catch and Kill podcast by Ronan Fell. My word, it has opened my eyes, and that is a piece of art in itself. Yes, it is journalism, but there is some artistry with what he's doing. I have been rereading some books of mine. I love myself some Harry Potter, of course. I love rereading my Shel Silverstein as he 
has my, my favorite poem of all time. There is a voice inside of you that whispers all day long. I feel that this is right for me. I know that this is wrong. No teacher, preacher, parent, friend, or wise man can decide what's right for you. Just listen to the voice that speaks inside. That little piece of art just, I can repeat it with I don't know how many, all my private clients or productions or class, and it's still, every time I say it, it always speaks to me different. All right, I did it. You have to do it now, Mitch. You have to do your yeah. bad British. <laughs> you asked no. for it. You, no. you, yes, you <laughs> I do. Did ask yes, for you it. do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Me, you kind of did. Me. You walked right into that bus stop. <laughs> you did. <laughs> you set it up, you turned it on, and then you're like, you first. Oh, oh. wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, all I can think is, oh, crap. <laughs> you can oh. start with the, with the hello if that helps you. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's try it. All right. Yeah. Hello. All right. All right. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, I'm so nervous. Oh, my heart. Okay. Pause. This is why I'm not an actor anymore. I can't. I can't do this. This is <laughs> really right, stressing me you out. You could totally okay. do it. Don't even worry about it. Don't All right. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> hey. Uh, no, I can't. Okay. Yes, you uh, can. Go on then. <laughs> you just got to remember, like, just widen your 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 knees right now and like sit back and let. You know, sink into your pelvis and you naturally will do it. It doesn't matter. I'm going to naturally do it. All right. Yeah. What keeps you up at night? Oh, my God. You know, I think it's actually, I think the thing that keeps me up at night usually is, am I fulfilling my potential and am I making the mm. impact that I've been put on this planet to make with the limited number of days that I've got on the planet? Like, am I really, did I do enough today to make, you know, make myself proud at the end of my life? How do you, oh man, I was really trying to do it. So you were there, you did it. That was yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on, How do you get through that after feeling that oh, way? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, I get real honest with myself. If I, you know, pardon me French, but if I dick around all day and I just take it for granted, my like first world status. And the fact that I'm a female and can vote and can pursue art, you know, as a profession and I can own property and I have my own checking account and I'm able to teach some of the most amazing young actors and I get to collaborate with some of the most amazing people. Then I just call myself on my laziness and say, you know what, you only got a limited amount of time on this planet and I know you can do better. And then other times I'm like, yeah, you're human. It's all right. You're on the human. Most people don't set these kind of lofty goals for themselves. But I knew, I knew like when I was real, real young, when I wanted to be a Muppet, it's because I was knew that I was destined for greatness. And so my whole life is really in pursuit of that greatness. And it just comes down for me of doing it day by day by day. Did I do something that I would, uh, you know, turn from myself, knowing what I'm capable of? Was it in pursuit of that greatness? Was that little piece of greatness achieved today? Most of the time, if you look at it right, you did do it. We just get so bogged down with like the money and the fame and the comfort. And then, you know, you get the money and the fame and the comfort and you're suddenly not comfortable. You're like, why is that? Because I've got a finite number of days on this planet and I want to leave my mark. Because as a human being, I want to be remembered. We all want to be remembered. That's why we tell stories. All right, last question. Last question. We're just going to go in a standard American. <laughs> All right. We could do like, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the other accents that I can pull out of my ass right now. <laughs> I know you could pull New York out of your butt. Come on. I could. Oh, my God. Does it have attitude? Is the question I mean, of attitude? It does. It, it, I mean, it has a little bit of attitude, but not. I don't know if it's the kind of attitude you're looking for. So All right. Here we go. Yeah. Last right. question. Sure. What one piece of advice would you give someone who wants to pursue the arts? Oh, gosh. I don't know if there's one piece. I'm trying to narrow it down. Maybe you can do like me. two or three. I was going to say, I'm like, oh, my God, are you serious? So first things first, do it. Do it for a couple of years. If you don't like it afterwards, if it's just not for you, and at least you could say that you did it and that you know there is nothing worse than living with regret. It will eat you up inside. So just do it. Everything will work out. You're going to be okay. You know, don't, don't compromise who you are. Just do it. Number two, get really, really clear about the kind of art that excites you and expect it to change as you evolve as an artist. 
just because you were super duper into it when you were 15 doesn't mean you're going to be that excited about it at 35. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you or you've lost something or you've sold out or whatever. You as an artist, you were born this way, you're an artist. You're just going to evolve. Your art's going to evolve. Your taste's going to evolve. Your message, what you want to get out there, is going to evolve. Don't, don't resist the rapids. Write them, you know? And then third, this is just a practical one, you know? Make sure, as artists, the natural tendency will be to be living, like, paycheck to paycheck, right? Save 5% of your paycheck and put it away in a savings account so that you have, like, a good month or two's living expenses set aside. Because there's going to be a time when, like, oh, crap. I got a really amazing opportunity. I got to take a trip. I got to get new headshots. I got an opportunity to record all these new voiceovers and I'm going to need this extra money, you know? Just go ahead and do that. And also, if you get residuals, don't spend them. Have them go direct deposit into a savings account. And then mm-hmm. it's just sitting there and you're like, oh my gosh, I saved all this money. And you didn't actually have to. Those are the, that's the one little practical piece of advice. Because I know that I've bit, you know, when I first started, I got into a bit of credit card debt like you do when you're out of college, mm-hmm. especially as an actor with all the things that you need. And, you know, it took me a while to get out of that credit card debt. So those headshots that were going to cost me like, you know, total with the with the lithographs back in the day with my repros, right, cost mm-hmm. me like $750, ended up costing me, you know, something like close to 1200 just with interest. So Oy. do yourself a favor. Yeah, I know, right? I'm such an idiot. Stupid 20. <laughs> Put away 5%. So even if it's 5 or $10, that'll make a huge difference because then you won't feel panic. Because the worst thing that you're going to do is if you don't have enough money set aside, you're going to probably take day jobs or like temp jobs or like one-off jobs that you'll feel like you're compromising your integrity. And then that opens the floodgates for you calling yourself a piece of shit and you're not worth anything and you're not worth the success you're not talented enough, it starts to spiral. So if you put that little savings there, it prevents you from having to take those those kinds of situations. Hey, thanks for listening. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, www.artisticpodcast.com. If you liked the episode, do us a favor and share it with a friend. It's the best way to help people find our podcast and will help support the show. For updates on new episodes and content, you can follow us at The Artistic Pod on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. See ya.